0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with David Walker. David is Emeritus Professor at Deakin University and an Honorary Professorial Fellow at the Asia Institute based at the University of Melbourne. David has written a new book called Stranded Nation, White Australia in an Asian Region. It looks at the history of Australia's relationship with Asia, and its perception of Asia. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio the wonderful David Walker. He is um, an emeritus professor at Deakin University. He's also a professorial fellow at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And you may recall that I spoke with David a couple of months ago over the phone to talk about uh, a most excellent essay that he wrote in the Australian Foreign Affairs Journal, um, which was on a related topic, and there is some um, overlap. At, but this book that uh, david has written is goes into so much more depth and uh, breadth on this topic it's called uh, stranded nation and it is a really wonderful piece of um, historical scholarship and research the subtitle is white australia in an asian region and uh, david has written a well a lot on this subject he's actually written other related books as well and i believe it was called anxious nation was uh the other book that's almost kind of a compliment to this book as well so i'm delighted now to welcome david into the studio and thank you so much for coming in
1: thank you amy it's great to be here
0: it's wonderful to have you i enjoyed our chat so much last time that i couldn't wait to speak to you again
1: Good. (laughs) happy to be here.
0: That's good. Um, I did notice that Stephen Fitzgerald is actually um, an associate of yours and he's written, um, I guess, the preface to this book. Um, What is your kind of relationship with Stephen and um, perhaps you can share his significance to uh, this subject with us?
1: Yes, well, Stephen... um of course, was our man in Beijing, uh, or, yes, from 1972. So he was the the first uh, ambassador to the People's Republic of China, uh, appointed by the Whitlam government. And he was a mere boy at the time. He was about 32. Wow. So it's extraordinary that he's still with us, in, in fact, because, you know, he's... Uh, He's been around uh, and at the centre of uh, public affairs and uh, Australia-China affairs for a very long time. Mm. And um, when I was in my uh, position as uh, the BHP Professor of Australian Studies at Peking University, uh, Stephen came through on a couple of occasions. Uh, I invited him also to a conference that I organised in uh, Shanghai in 2015. And he gave a... Absolutely fabulous uh, talk there, which was partly about his time in, in Beijing and his time as ambassador, which became the basis for Comrade Ambassador, his, uh, his book on, on that experience, but also his wider experience of um, China.
0: Yeah, well, he's a highly regarded person in this field, and as are you. So um, it's great to hear from him and his take on this book. And um, he's talking about your book and what he's taken out of it, of course. Um, And he said he savoured the reading of this book um, because although Australia-Asia relations have been a professional interest for me over the past six decades, it has enlightened me on much I never knew. I feel like that's a pretty big endorsement, isn't it?
1: I'm happy, I'm happy with that endorsement. I, I'm willing to accept that. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. But I, but I think actually the point that Stephen's also making is that, that in fact there is a history to be researched there and as much as we often think we know a subject or we know the history because we've lived it, uh, when you actually go back to the records... Uh, and have a look at you know what was said and what was done and what was what was uh, thought. Uh, new stuff uh, come comes to light, and and I think he was making the he was making a case for history there. I think as well, Amy, mm. that um, you really do have to go back to the records, and uh, that's the best way to get a, a more comprehensive understanding of uh, you know where we've been.
0: Of course, and you say about. Um Australia and Asia, and our relationship and perception of Asia, that we've kind of often put them um, over as a, a distant future, some kind of something that's going to happen for us, for Australia, that a relationship that's going to emerge and grow somewhere into the future. And so you've highlighted that um, that can often shut down any kind of examination of what's happened in the past, which is. As any historian knows, very important not only for the present in terms of how we um, manage our relationships and build upon our connections but also for the future
1: sure yeah no i think the i 'm quite fascinated by this by this futurist project, if you like, and it's it goes back to the late nineteenth century really I mean the idea if you look at the invasion writing, and we may come to this later, but if you look at the the idea of invasion—nearly always, those stories are set a generation into the future. So, uh, the warning goes out that unless we uh, address the problem that is building in our community now, we're going to face some kind of uh, catastrophic moment, and we better prepare for it. And that idea that, that we face an Asian future often has a fairly catastrophic tinge to it, you know, that mm. it's something we should be worrying about rather than uh, anticipating more positively. But it continues right down to, uh, for example, the Gillard white paper uh, on, on Asia, on Australia's place, Australia in the Asian Century, And all of that was framed pretty much as something that was unprecedented. She used the term unprecedented, that that we face unprecedented times. Of course, that's always true. I mean, the present, whatever future we face is unprecedented by definition. You know, not going to repeat what's happened in the past. But the idea that we've never had to face rising Asia and that uh, this is something that uh, is occurring to us for the first time is simply wrong you know we've we've faced rising asia over the last uh, century but i think the other danger in it is that it it, it is a kind of active of postponement you know that we're saying to ourselves this is this is happening or about to happen or will one day happen uh, we don't need to really get too urgent about it just yet um, a little bit like climate change for some people but let 's let 's just wait around and see how it turns out and and then we 'll address it. But the fact of the matter is it 's with us now, mm. and we 've been facing different versions of rising Asia for the last century.
0: Do you think there is, or the reason why perhaps there's been this active of postponement of pushing Asia and our relationship into the future, is it partially because of perhaps a lack of understanding of Asia? And obviously Asia is quite a, a big term, but there's so many parts of Asia, so many countries within Asia that have their own identities, their own very unique cultures <coughs> and languages. Perhaps do you think there is a bit of a disconnect or a lack of understanding Understanding of those cultures and, um, you know, the the differences, but also the similarities.
1: Oh, I think that's true. I think that is true. I mean, Asia is a pretty um, awkward uh, term and an awkward category. I mean, in some ways, indispensable. I mean, we can't hold a conversation without using the word and without using the term. But the term has its um, has its drawbacks because it it covers... So much cultural diversity and so much uh, so much historical diversity and uh, and so on that that it's pretty you know it, it's a it's a way of papering over a whole lot of uh, very very important differences. But I think the other dynamic in this is that we tend to look back upon that past as being pretty unhelpful to us in a nation-building kind of way. You know, we we kind of know that. Uh, our treatment of um, Asian communities historically wasn't uh, wasn't terrific. Um, our attitudes towards the Chinese in the 19th uh, and early 20th century was often extremely prejudiced and derogatory. So there's a fear in the community, I think, and perhaps an understandable one, that we really don't want to dredge all that stuff up mm. at a time when we're trying to engage rising Asia. But... I, I do quite a bit of teaching in, uh, in China, Beijing Foreign Studies University in, uh, in Beijing, and I go through all this stuff with the students. Um, they're pretty unfazed about the fact... I mean, they're not comfortable with the images that uh, I present, to them and the, but they they're more inclined to wonder what's wrong with us that we should have mm. been perpetrating these kinds of stereotypes than what's wrong with them. So I think we've just got to muscle up a bit and have a bit more courage about talking about about our past because the the people in Asia who we often worry about being, you know, too sensitive or too concerned about this are much more comfortable comfortable with us addressing it and facing it and discussing it than they are with us attempting to hide it. Mm -hmm. So it's a past we can go back to. We shouldn't be excessively uh, ashamed about it. I think we just look at it, analyse it,
0: fess up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the more you hide something or don't address it, the more you are making it appear to be shameful or giving it a kind of air of shame.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I, I think it is a hell of a lot better to, to get a bit of sunlight onto it and and discuss it. And some of the discussions I've had with the uh, students in China have been terrific, actually, I mean, about how stereotypes work, uh, who needs them, who uses them, why this emphasis or that emphasis. And so the, the discussion that you can have once you open it up and just look at it, is really pretty rewarding and worthwhile.
0: Mm. And you've, uh, in other conversations, talked about a bit of a link in terms of confronting our past with um, our treatment of Aboriginals in Australia, the the first people of Australia, and also those um, in Asia and who've perhaps migrated to Asia, or just people over there in Asia who we are um, engaging with at different levels, but Perhaps we're excluding at, via a policy like the White Australia policy, which was in a way preventing a lot of um, people from Asia from migrating to Australia.
1: Well, I think there's I think there's a very uh, interesting and and quite intricate connection around the the Asian question the the question of rising Asia in the late nineteenth century, and our attitudes towards uh, British colonisation or European colonisation of Australia. And one of the things I argue is that by this period, by the 1890s, there's beginning to be an awareness, I think, that what we did to Aboriginal Australia, uh, Asia will do to us. So in the language of that period, uh, white replaces black... Yellow, in mm. 19th century terminology, yellow replaces white. So, and there's a book uh, published 1904 called The Coloured Conquest, which is a novel, uh, but it's essentially that theme that runs through The Coloured Conquest, that what what we did to them, Asia will do to us. So that, that is also coming up at a time when the nation is being formed. So Mm. we've got 1890s, we've got the federation movement, we've got um, the whole process of trying to get the colonies to come together uh, as a commonwealth. So Rising Asia uh, coincides with Rising Australia, if you like, or the creation of the Commonwealth of Australia. Mm. But Rising Asia is also the thing that can remove or eliminate or wipe out the new Commonwealth. So sitting in the national psyche, I think, is this pretty deeply embedded concern that that um, Asia might be terminal for us. You know, we've only just come into being as a nation. We're just looking uh, towards the dawn and our bright future. We're just imagining the kind of people, the kind of nation we could become, and there on the horizon is terminal Asia about to wipe us out. So I think uh, you can overstate that and, and it can be, um, you know, put in terms that are a bit too uh, sort of blunt. But mm. but I think there's a dynamic of that kind going on there.
0: Yeah, and you right, raise an important point in terms of the context of what we're talking about when we're saying that um, in terms of the settlement of Australia and the Federation of Australia, it was as a society, a white society predominantly a new (coughs) nation um that was yeah federated early in the 20th century and so when you think about uh Societies like Japan and China that are very advanced civilizations that have, you know, have a huge uh, amount of invention and history and culture behind them um, that some of the... And, of course, Australia has one of the longest histories with its Indigenous people um, in the entire world. But when you're looking at then the British and um, the Europeans coming and settling, they had this, um, I guess, as you say, mindset of being a new nation, of being just formed and, of course, then feeling perhaps more intimidated by the sophistication perhaps of Asia although I'm interested in the way that they're stereotyped as perhaps not having that sophistication that we would know that they had
1: well I think there are a number of things going on there I mean if you go if you go to the Chinese and a lot of the language around race in this period late 19th early 20th century is is based around understandings of or misunderstandings of biology and and all the rest of it. So the Chinese were regarded as a very um, they, they were the possessors of a very uh, tenacious bloodline. So the concern was that you could never breed out the Chinese again using nineteenth century. Categories and terminology, you couldn't breed them out. So whereas Aboriginal Australians were thought of in the language of the time as evanescent, you know, they were a disappearing race. So the part of the concern was uh, these very tenacious bloodlines, so get a few drops of Chinese blood into the community and the culture and it would never be eradicated... But sitting behind that is is just that argument about the depth of their civilizations. you know that they have been around a very long time mm. uh, and they've achieved some remarkable things across thousands of years and when it came to the Japanese, uh, Alfred Deakin once rather famously said that uh, it was their good qualities that we had to fear and Historians, I think, have kind of misunderstood that statement. I mean, they've disparaged his comment, but I, I think if you locate it in the context of the early 20th century, the argument that he's making is precisely that argument about how disciplined they are, mm-hmm. how, um, how uh, their capacities are evident in the civilizations that they've created and in the case of the japanese just how quickly and miraculously they've uh, modernized after the meiji restoration in 1868 so across a generation uh, japan had come to the forefront of the world's attention and that required enormous uh, skills capacities uh, discipline talent you know mm. so don't write them off you know
0: Yes, and it also we see a rising relationship between Japan and the British Empire and Australia becoming very anxious about that and making it clear that they're concerned um, that perhaps Britain will... Um, ha- parcel off any kind of responsibility to defend Australia and push it onto the Japanese, um, given that they, you know, started creating treaties with each other um, and that was certainly something which uh, I know that the Australian Prime Ministers brought up and raised concerns um, with the British and also then decided they needed to form their own uh, form of defence and it almost really pushed Australia into becoming more independent
1: Yes, I mean, I, th- I think the the difference of opinion over Japan and Japan's future was one of the critical points of departure, or was a a, a a real difficulty in uh, aligning an Australian point of view, an emerging Australian point of view, with a with a British imperial view, because out of that treaty, the 1902 treaty, the. Japanese, which Japan and Britain signed, um, the Japanese were assigned a role. The Japanese Navy was assigned a role in the Pacific. And so the British Empire, British naval capacity was stretched. Uh, They felt that they couldn't necessarily look after our part of the world. Now, Again, from the British point of view, this might have looked uh, quite um, sensible and a sensible treaty arrangement. From an Australian point of view, it looked uh, pretty alarming. And it looked more alarming after 1904-5 when the Japanese defeated the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War, which is the first time in the modern era that an Asian nation defeats a European nation. So Mm. all of those anxieties that had built up around race war, uh, about uh, the fact that there was an inevitable struggle between the white and the yellow races, uh, came to a head around that time. And there was also the feeling that Australia would be one of the battlegrounds in that, in that great race war because he was a tremendously um, valuable continent... Uh, largely, again, in the rhetoric of the period, largely empty, so an empty continent mm. available for colonisation and as a prize uh, in the race war, in the coming race war, it was uh, unparalleled. So Australia sort of is figured into this, this language and this um, contestation over the future uh, in a very direct and immediate way.
0: Mm. And in terms of um, Britain and its influence on Australia in having a relationship with uh, Asia and Asian countries, you highlight in the book um, the terminology that Australia was using, um, which was the Far East, which, of course, you highlight the fact that it Asia isn't to our far east; it's to our near north, and so it was interesting that it took quite a while for anyone to start using um, alternate, more accurate terminology like the near north um, when we talk about our neighbours, because of course they are our closest neighbours.
1: Yes, I mean we we in again looking at late nineteenth, early twentieth century, we're basically using. British imperial terminology um, to describe the world, and uh, our part of the world is different, looks different, and our relationship to it is different. But the the near north-far east uh, uh, story is a very interesting one, I think, because in uh, Stranded Nation, I note that one of the first usages or one of the first... Uh, people to dispute this uh, idea uh, comes up uh, in the 1870s 1880s and his argument is that um, looked at from australia it's not the far east uh, and he does use the term near north so that um, you can at least trace the term back to that to that Period around 1880, people are mm. some people are beginning to say, "Hang on, um, we better rethink our our language and the way we think about and uh, discuss our relationship to the region." So there it is, 1880, and then it's not until uh, Menzies' first radio broadcast as prime minister in 1939 that he uses the term near north. And what he says in that broadcast, which has to be a very deliberate moment for a a new prime minister, I mean, it's not... Again, I think historians have missed the significance of it because I think Menzies was trying to make the point that we have to think about our place in the region Mm. and we have to think uh, about this as our near north, not as our far east. Now, the other... Part of what Menzies was saying, I think, was not that we should therefore develop an independent foreign policy and we should strike out on our own. I think his argument was that this is Australia's opportunity to step onto the world stage alongside Britain so Mm. that we could be, uh, you know, Britain's partner in uh, managing the... Pacific and managing Pacific affairs. So it's not a moment of of, uh, striking independence, but it's a moment of uh, announcing Australia's uh, collaborative intention and desire to be recognised by Britain as a worthwhile player uh, in the region but the term pacific's pretty interesting in all this can i ramble yes. on about that yeah Amy? i was going Am to I ask about to that
0: <laughs> yes please
1: yeah well the, the pacific i think is a very interesting term because it it's again there are a lot of there are a lot of asia related terms that are being used um, in this period down to the first half of the 20th century but in australia the pacific becomes the preferred term i think and my argument is that it's really a reassuring way of referring to the region because it's, uh, it refers to naval. The Pacific uh, is an allusion to naval naval power. It's about oceans. Mm. It's about naval power, and it includes the United States, includes Britain and the United States. So it picks up all those heroic references about um, you know Drake and Frobisher and the British Navy. It draws in the American. Uh, naval power, the Great White Fleet, and and so on—the the ways in which America had become increasingly uh, significant as a naval power—and it reassures Australians that the Pacific is not something quite so worrisome as that other thing, uh, Asia, the Asian landmass, which is characteristically referred to as teeming and um, massive populations uh, hell bent on. On uh, coming down towards Australia, so the landmass idea of Asia conjures up invasive Asia, mm. and the Pacific conjures up much more reassuring images about our British imperial past and our uh, potentially American uh, future. But it's naval, it's naval power, and on the oceans, you know, where, where we rule the waves.
0: Mm. Where do you think we're at in terms of our terminology now then? Because obviously Asia-Pacific gets bandied about quite a lot when you're talking about the region as a whole.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, we've shifted away from Asia-Pacific now because Asia-Pacific had a kind of um, run from about uh, 2005 or so, so it had about a 10-year run. It it predated that, of course, Mm. but it really had a, a, a very strong and was preferred in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and so on. So it was it was the term. Asia-Pacific was the term. And then a few years ago it became Indo-Pacific. So Asia is sort of taken out of it. And there's a lot of argument about why this might be happening, but one of the things that does concern me a bit is try to remove Asia from the terminology again, and especially so if that means that we're... Once again, worried about Asia. You know, we 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 don't we prefer that term not to be there. So, <laughs> Indo-Pacific is more reassuring. But but also in the, um, you know, the APEC conference in in New Guinea recently, the Xi Jinping was referring to the Asia-Pacific, and the American Vice President Pence was referring to the Indo-Pacific. So there's a huge amount of confusion going on here about you know, what we're talking about and the implications of what we talk about in a in a geopolitical, geostrategic way.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, bringing it back to a bit, because you did say we wanted to talk about invasion and you highlight a, a range of, I guess, cultural products, literary um, stories that were fictional and um, non-fictional and we saw, as you say, the first Australian story of Asian invasion in William Lane's, uh piece white or yellow from 1888 um now i don't i believe william lane was quite a controversial figure um in and of itself but why did or how did this kind of narrative around invasion and um you know it it, obviously the term was also used quite a lot at the time as well like it seemed like a quite a common term in newspapers is this Anxiety and this kind of yeah, f- seems like seemingly out of control concept of invasion.
1: Yeah, I mean, whether how out of control it was is another matter, and I think you know we have to look at things like you know who read this stuff, what what its circulation was, and so on. Uh, and I think it's possible to get a bit too excited about you know everyone was lapping it up because um, and and. And I say that partly because a lot of the writing was designed to wake Australians up to the danger they are in. Now, mm. if they weren't awake to the danger they are in, they were obviously pretty relaxed. And so a lot of the stories... Um, there's another one, um, The Yellow Wave, a romance of the Asiatic invasion of Australia, a ripping yarn in the late 1890s, and, and that's a, a Chinese-Russian collaboration over invasion... And the Russians um, are uh, shocked and appalled at how um, casual Australians are about the danger they're in. Mm. And, you know, they're much more fascinated by the Melbourne Cup and, you know, betting and racing and football and all the rest of it. So there's a dual narrative running through this. On the one hand, there's a bunch of people writing about invasion uh, as, as, as warning... Uh, but the subtext of what they're writing is often that these people don't care as much as they should. You know, we really <laughs> got to get into them, and wake them up. So, uh, again, as a historian, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by by that slightly contradictory um, storyline running running through that material. But getting back to Lane, I mean, I think they. One of the really interesting and telling things uh, about the story: well, there are two things there, white or yellow. So it's a choice. You know, you can't have both. And this goes back to the bloodlines thing and Lane's obsession with population and blood. Uh, get a few drops of Chinese blood into the community, and you're a go So it's it's not it's not a matter of compromise, or it's not you know we can accommodate or live with or you know work alongside the chinese it's it's white or yellow, and the subtitle the race war of a d nineteen hundred and eight so it sets the story a generation into the future so the the futurist uh, narrative um, enters enters the language uh, at that point as well mm. so but invasion invasion is also designed as a way of talking about nation-building. So it's a way of saying we're about to be threatened, uh, we're in danger of being rolled as a nation, what do we have to do to defend ourselves? How do we, how do we fight this off? And one of the persistent themes running through that, uh, that body of literature is that the defence of Australia lies in the rural interior... And the heroic figure, the race patriot, who will defend us from rising Asia is the Bushman. So I would argue, and I've argued this with absolutely no success whatsoever, Amy, mm-hmm. with among my historian colleagues, that um, uh, some of the enthusiasm for the Bush and the Bushman, uh, not all of it, of course, I mean, there are a number of reasons why the Bush became as important as it did for Australians... But part of the reason for that enthusiasm is that the rise of the bush coincides pretty much with the rise of Asia as a invasive force. And how are we going to... Where do we get the, the, the moral and human resources that we need, the disciplines, capacities, uh, skills, horsemanship, uh, ability with rifles and all the rest of it? Where do we get that quasi-military capacity to defend ourselves in the event of a crisis. And the mm. argument constantly comes back to the bush and the bushman. So the bush is not just this sort of happy place with lots of chirping birds, kangaroos, flora, fauna, distinctiveness and all the rest of it. It's, it's embedded in the language in the late 19th century. It's embedded in the language of race patriotism. These are the race patriots who will save the nation.
0: Mm. That's pretty surprising, really, that um, it hasn't gotten that traction that you, you know, would expect, um, given there is such a strong correlation. Um, And certainly I know that Australian history has always been very contested and there's a lot of differences and um, we've seen, you know, the culture wars across the years for over a range of issues, particularly around race. Um, But... You know, you do point out and highlight some of the historiography and scholarship that's been occurring on this issue um, in the past. Where where do you think you sit then in in relation to some of your colleagues when you're talking about um, this issue around race and um, and the Bushmen and yeah the the yeah. portrayal of Australia?
1: Well, I think one of the one of the arguments I'd make here, I guess, is that and. Um, I guess it's also uh, risking the wrath of my colleagues, but but many of them choose Australian history and are interested in Australian history because they want to, understandably, build up the story of Australia as a distinctive uh, nation and culture. Mm. You know that it stands for something worthwhile. Uh, that it's a progressive nation, as it's formed in 1901. Uh, and that it stands for something that we can and should uh, celebrate. And I don't have a huge problem with that, but, but the problem I have with it is that it systematically overlooks the regional context in which this nation emerges and is formed, and that regional context is the Asian region. And running right through the federation debate, for example, there's a very strong uh, argument around the need for Australia to federate because only a federated Australia can form a national army, for example. Only a federated Australia can defend itself. Only a federated Australia can have uniform railway gauges that will enable the nation to link up and look after itself uh, at, the, at a time of crisis. So I don't see it as disparaging the nation, diminishing the nation or weakening the nation to also point out that that the ways in which we've thought about Asia have been uh, powerful in, in determining the kinds of priorities that we've developed uh, in Australia. So again, if you go back, uh, and this is, you know, this is not particularly controversial actually but if you go back to the first decade of federation the money that was poured into the defense budget was extraordinary and uh, so a small nation uh expending as much uh, of its resources as it did on defense speaks volumes for uh, that set of concerns around our vulnerability Mm. there's a similar debate about the point at which the commonwealth takes over the northern territory as a commonwealth responsibility because at federation the northern territory was governed by run by south australia the concern there was that 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 uh was a real point of vulnerability because the North, going back to all those concerns about northern borders and boundaries and vulnerabilities, South Australia, it was thought, was in no position to secure the northern border and the most vulnerable of those northern borders was the Northern Territory. So uh, the Northern Territory becomes a Commonwealth responsibility in 1910. And that, again, is a debate that generates enormous concern around... And one of the driving forces of that debate is we have to close our borders. We have to close... encircle Australia, mm. if you like, we have to make it secure. We have to secure Australia. Yeah. Um, so those arguments, I think, all tie in. But I think the missing link often for Australian historians... Is precisely the Asian context in which some of these debates are framed mm. and developed?
0: But I do want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the other parts of Asia. We've talked about some of the fears of Asia, the invasion narratives that existed in the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. but there was also, as David you've said, uh, a, tr- a fascination with Asia. That seems to fly in the face of everything we know or think we know about a closed and emphatically anti-Asian white Australia. It's hard now, as you say, to appreciate that for many Australians of that time, the door to Asia had not been shut tightly enough. So what... Parts of Australia were had fascinated by Asia and were engaging with Asia perhaps on a personal level um, and and what kind of ways did they express that fascination
1: yes well i think I think that's an interesting point Amy, and I'm glad you've raised it because it it does highlight that there is a, a contest going on here there's a battle going on and um, and a battle going on over how we characterise the region that we Inhabit. So, if you go back to the again, go back to the 1880s and the 1890s, there's a tremendous interest in rising Japan. I mean, Japan is thought of as being, um, as I said before, a kind of miracle of modernisation. But there's also, across the world, there's a rising interest in Japanism, you know, the mm. the Japanese arts, crafts and the Japanese aesthetics and, and painting, which reaches into Australia as well. Yes. You know, there's, a, there's an interest in the way the Japanese uh, imagine the world, see the world and depict the world.
0: Mm. It influences uh, Art Deco a lot, that art movement. Yes.
1: Yes, uh, a whole lot of... I mean, the late 19th century European art mm. is, you know, Degas and others, Monet and so on. I mean, they're enormously influenced by Japanese aesthetics, which is coming into the West in the late 19th century. And those influences sweep into Australia uh, as well at the same time. So Japan is regarded often uh, in in those literary cultural circles as as a miracle... Uh, society and culture. It's, it's new. There's an appetite for the new. And it's considered deeply fascinating. So, again, getting back to my little story, The Coloured Conquest, I mean, the battle line there is between uh, a gentleman who's worried about a, a naval squadron, a visiting Japanese naval squadron, which came to Australia, literally came mm. to Australia in 1903, and his, um, you know, delightful partner Mabel, who is rather more fascinated by the Japanese naval officers than he thinks is appropriate. So the argument is is partly broken open on gender lines. That again, the the chaps, the males, are the proper guardians of the nation. They understand the danger that rising Japan uh, poses. And they can see past the shiny uniforms and the spick and span uh, character uh, characteristics of the of the Japanese, whereas poor Mabel, who is much more shallow, not uh, geopolitically aware and of course being a woman can 't be, yeah. uh, is beguiled by by the Japanese and their uniforms and so there 's a kind of um, story running through that, that, that there's a fascination with rising Asia and an interest in Asian aesthetics, Asian religions, uh, are beginning to uh, attract attention. Uh, and as you mentioned in that quote, uh, there are some in Australia who feel that any interest in Asia... Uh, is dangerous, and the door left open just slightly is is uh, is a menace to our future. So, again, looking back at it uh, as historians, we often think of white Australia as shutting the door. So, white Australia is the thing that shuts the door on Asia, and it keeps it shut for at least half a century. But what that misses, I think, is this this constant. Um, concern about how asia is imagined how australia how asia is thought about and the ways in which various figures particularly artists writers and others are intrigued by asia and also travellers are intrigued by asia because there are mm. increasingly people travelling into the region and coming back with stories of how you know fascinating this world world is and and that fascination is seen to be dangerous, and so the other, the other point I make is that that we often, uh, I think, believe that our uh, anti-Japanese sentiment, which is of course intensified uh, during the Second World War and after, is kind of innate to us. You know, we grew up knowing that the Japanese were dangerous. We grew up knowing that we had to fear them. We grew up knowing that we had to be wary of them. Uh, and I would argue the country We grew up being quite intrigued by Japan. We grew up in some quarters being very fascinated by Japan. And we had to be taught that the Japanese were dangerous. And a lot of, again, the invasion stories and a lot of the narratives around closing the door are... Stories about how we have to be much more careful about uh, entertaining the idea that there's nothing to worry about uh, from either the Japanese or, or from the region. We have to worry about this because it's you know it's it's, mm. it's it's threatening our future. So it's we learn we have to learn to dislike and fear. The Japanese. It's not innate. It's not culturally innate. It's not something. It's not not the birthright. It's something we learn.
0: Yes, and there are other elements to this, such as. fictional stories that you write about such as Madame Izan from 1899 which um, was written by uh, Rosa Campbell, is it Praed?
1: Prayed.
0: Prayed and she wrote this really interesting story that you say was about a blind but very beautiful heroine who must choose between two ardent suitors, a splendidly virile Queenslander determined to protect her from intrusive Asia and a somewhat frail Japanese gentleman of high birth and Considerable cultivation, and what was interesting in that story is that she chose the Japanese suitor.
1: Yes, yes, I'm deeply, uh, I'm deeply attached to Madame Itzan for all sorts <laughs> of reasons, including her blindness, of course. But mm. the um, the pride uh, the pride story is, I think, a very clever satire on on the this rising tide of of, of masculinist. Um, and bush-driven concern about invasive Asia—that it's going to be, it's going to be the male and the, the virile Queenslander, who is the first line of defence against uh, against rising Asia. So in the story, the Queenslander, who's uh, you know extremely wealthy and he's got muscles everywhere, uh, and is totally and absolutely uh, desirable according to the uh, stereotypes is also obsessed by yellow peril anxieties, and he 's sort of running around Japan um, looking suspiciously at uh, at every at everything that he can see mm. and anticipating a threat uh, to australia 's integrity from from japan but Madame mitzan of course, being blind is not um, open to the same kind of uh, racial stereotyping uh, that is often driven by skin colour and sight and physical, physiognomical difference. So, in, in a sense, Prade takes her out of of a racialising discourse, if you like, and says, "Right, if someone's blind and mm-hmm. you're presented with the fundamental qualities of this person and that person, who might they choose? And so she... Um, has her heroine choose the, very wisely in my view, choose the Japanese suitor. He was a lovely fellow, I think. I mean, physically he wasn't up to much, but, you know, very very cultivated, learned, uh, interesting, intellectually uh, worthwhile.
0: Yes, it's not all about looks, is it?
1: No. Well, that's right. <laughs> well, for Madame mid and it couldn't be.
0: No, exactly. <laughs> um, let's. Uh, I should also just mention. I was so interested when you write about Anna Mae Wong, the chi- Chinese American actress mm. who came visited Australia, and the fascination with her. Um, but we'll have to move on just to close out this discussion. I wanted to talk about a really important part of um, our relationship with Asia, not only in the past but also now. As you've highlighted in this book, we've been doing business with countries like China for a very long time in different ways and at different levels, of course. Um, But we certainly don't just have a a transactional economic-based relationship with countries in Asia. And that's something which is often kind of talked about: is our, our strong economic ties and the fact that we sell a lot of our resources to countries like China. And you highlight this kind of um, the really important fact that having a relationship with Asia isn't just about um, you know buying goods and services and and having a, a trading relationship. It's a lot more than that, and it should be a lot a lot more than that. And we've often as as politicians, reduced that relationship down to a very transactional and economic basis. Um, some There are some exceptions, of course, with Paul Keating being one of them who, you know, was focused, as was Bob Hawke, on some of the other exchanges between nations. Uh, but I, I want to highlight, as I said um, at the start of the show, one of the most recent examples of this, and of course there are so many, where Scott Morrison... Uh, just yesterday said, when asked about whether we would have to take sides in the trade dispute between America and China, he said, you stand by your friends and you stand by your customers as well. So he was kind of really clearly highlighting this very strong sense that Australia is um, selling its goods to China and that is the way that we're interacting. How problematic is that and how has that type of um, arrangement or perception of our relationship to Asia being expressed over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it is pretty pop- problematic. I, I think in some ways it's understandable that when um, Australians were trading with China, communist China in the 50s and 60s, you know, we were selling wheat to China uh, and the rural communities were benefiting from that and in fact they were among the people uh, who supported the idea of uh, China recognition, you know, uh, wh- when you might imagine that they'd, they'd resist it or have concerns about it. So selling Asia to Australia has often been done via the trade path. You mm. know, it's good for us. It's good for our economy. And that's proved to be the case. I mean, after 1957, the trade agreement with Japan was very beneficial for us and similarly with China but i think I think that 's you know that 's fifty sixty years ago, or whatever, and the idea that we 're still characterizing the Chinese for example, as customers is 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 really is really problematic and it 's problematic on several grounds, but one of them is that even on economic grounds, if we wish to understand the market that we 're so uh, obsessed and concerned about. Uh, we need to understand what motivates Chinese choices. What, what are their what are their uh, cultural predilections? Why are they wanting this product versus that product? Uh, why do they want French wine rather than Australian ro- wine or whatever the argument might be? So I think we've got to get away from the idea that they're just uh, sort of, in a sense, two-dimensional receptors of the stuff we want to send them because... They're making choices about what they want. Those choices come from rounded human beings uh, who are culturally embedded in in contemporary China, mm. and their uh, their their choices are important for us to understand. So, we, if we think of them simply as customers, we we not only we, we damage the thing we're trying to protect, the transactional thing, but we also cut ourselves off from the cultures of the region, which we need to know, again, not just in transactional terms, but because we might benefit from it, you know, we <laughs> might learn something from it, we might understand different ways of doing things and different ways of organising the world and understanding the world, and and that's got to be a positive thing. So it's it's damaging both at the transactional level, I think, it doesn't help us there at all, but it also creates a a kind of um, false sense of security that we don't need to talk about, think about or address their cultures.
0: Yes, and... um What's really interesting also is the fact that we have such a strong population of uh, mainland China people coming to Australia as students in particular and um, coming through our universities and, of course, any person uh, in their 20s and 30s are likely to have had um, fellow students come from a range of uh, countries in Asia. So it's not too hard to start to engage with Asian culture and different countries via the people who are already in Australia, who are around us um, as fellow um, people, to to start to break down the barriers that exist.
1: Yes, this gives me a wonderful opportunity, Amy, to draw attention to another um, argument that I run, and that we often frame Asia as being outside. It's the Asia without, uh, you know, and it's the and this is part of the invasion narrative. You know, it's the thing outside that's coming to get us. Whereas uh, across our history, there's been Asia within, you know, there'd been communities within Australia. Uh, And so, again, that idea that where Asia is the future and it's coming at us and we better better attend to it and we've never been there before, again overlooks the ways in which these communities have been with us for quite some time and the ways in which they interact, they address their place in our society and the contributions they make to that society I think uh, are things we need to pay more attention to. And, And by and large, I think we are. I think we are moving in that direction. Uh, in terms of the Asia within if you like.
0: Yes certainly it needs a bit of a conscious effort to include because if you're not consciously including people and starting to seek to understand others and establish empathy um, for other viewpoints and other backgrounds then you can sometimes unconsciously exclude people.
1: Yeah I think that's right I think that is right and it can take it can take a bit of effort. And I think also I, I would say on the Chinese side, I mean, it's all the virtue is not on their mm. side and all the, uh, <laughs> the the wrong on ours. I mean, I think, again, speaking of the Chinese side, I, I think it's important for them to interact with, with going to the, the student experience, for them to interact with Australian students. It's been one of the, the problems that's come up around international students that the only students they see are other international students because I think we want international students to get a better understanding of our society, of how it works, of our values. You know, we're not just a blank slate. We're not just a place with no culture, no history and nothing worth paying attention to. We have things here that we believe we do well. We have values that we take seriously Mm. Uh, we want our uh, the communities coming into Australia to understand what those things are. And, you know, on the verge of an election, it's important that, that people voting, uh, whoever they are and for whatever community they come from, understand the political traditions of our society, understand the values of our society and know what they're voting for. You know, so there's, there's a cultural literacy... Mm question on both sides of this of this uh, argument i would i would suggest
0: yes absolutely and i would agree that you know having more cultural exchange and australians adopting um some traditions from uh, different asian countries and asian countries adopting some of our traditions is a really nice way to share in the kind of joyous differences and special features that we all have as as nations with a, a long history of culture
1: Yes, I think that's right. And, of course, there will be points of tension and difficulty, Mm. but we're going to handle them a lot better if there's some kind of uh, conversational background. There's a shared language. There's a way of approaching these things. And there's some degree of uh, mutual understanding that we actually know uh, what we're uh, disagreeing about (laughs) and can resolve that.
0: Yeah. David, it's been so fascinating to speak with you and no doubt... um, Others have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have because uh, you've really put a lot of thought and work into this book and the ideas that you have put forward and I just um, thank you immensely and congratulate you on another very important work, historical piece of scholarship
1: thank you amy it's great to be here
0: i've been speaking with emeritus professor david walker who is the author of stranded nation and it's out through new south books as well as Uh, university of of wa publishing (laughs) don't worry i haven't forgotten and uh and obviously they do some great work publishing some very important and interesting books as well and uh David's doing some um, great work, as I said, and he's engaging himself in Asia and I know has um, lived there and um, worked there in different capacities. So he's um, coming from a place of first-hand experience as well as a, as a historian. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.